and we have a lot of ground to cover. I'm pretty sure we'll get to all of it one way or the other. But the part I'm most excited about is the story in Second Chronicles. Because it is, I mean, I'm such a, a fool for things. You're going to hear me say it's my favorite about this side of the Bible a lot, probably. And eventually you'll stop believing me because you're like, well, Pastor, you always say it's your favorite. But I'm going to try to maintain I'm very specific. I'm a connoisseur. So I have like a favorite verse. I have a favorite half verse, favorite chapter, a favorite story, right? So this is like in that somewhere. And I think this is my favorite story of intrigue. There's nothing quite like it. It makes, and I am a Game of Thrones fan in the sense I read the books. That's kind of tame by the way this story goes. It's just completely insane. And to try to keep the names in order, even as I tell it to you, is where it's going to be challenging. I may not say the right name once, and then that'll throw you off, because they all have these Old Testament overlapping names, remember, right? J1, J2, we did that. This is one of those guys, too, by the way. So some of this may ring a bell. But let me just give you some of the big players behind the scene first. You might remember Jezebel, right? Jezebel. Jezebel is like the most wicked human in the Bible. I mean, you got Herod's pretty bad, killing the babies, Pharaoh and all that, but, but Jezebel's got a real particular evil to her. And it comes from her heritage. It's actually her, her past, her legacy. She is the daughter of a guy named Ethbalos, the king of Tyre and Sidon. Now, if Tyre and Sidon ring a bell... It's because that goes further back in Israel's history. These are the Phoenicians, not the Philistines, but kind of like them in a lot of ways. A seafaring people to the north coastal side of Israel that were supposed to be conquered by Asher. They were allotted that land, but Asher got there and they saw Tyre and Sidon and the walls. And they said, well, God says this, but my mysticism says we aren't going to take it. So we're going home now. And from that point on, Tyre and Sidon became a thorn in the side of Israel. They continue to lead the people astray, particularly into human sacrifices, killing babies. We're still doing that today. And sexual sin. Hey, look at that. Things don't change that much. Well, I would imagine that living in Ancient Tyre and Sidon was not unlike living in Washington, D.C. Why can I say that? Well, because liars whose consciences are seared often grasp for power until they get to the very top, and they just won't stop. Nothing gets in their way. And Ethbaal didn't just get born king of Tyre and Sidon. Oh, no, no, no. He killed his brother to become king of Tyre and Sidon. They were supposed to share that rule somehow, and instead he murdered him. He also was the high priest of Astarte, or Asherah, who is the feminine half of the worship of Baal. Baal eventually becomes Hercules and sort of Zeus. He's the sky god. He's the thunder god. He's kind of the big everywhere god. Odin's not so different as well. But Tyre and Sidon, like they have temples to this Baal and Asherah poles wherein you can go and get the prostitutes to guarantee your crops will grow. And yeah, that's how it really worked. And the Israelites continued to be part of this reality. But Judah, whenever it had a faithful king, reformed and pushed back against that kind of religion in the land. And so at the time of Jehoshaphat, you may or may not remember his name. I learned it first as a kid because of some phrase, jumping Jehoshaphat. I don't even know what it means. Stuck the name in my head. Jehoshaphat's a pretty good guy. 
He does a lot of good things. He's kind of a warrior, too. He's got his own neat tail, but he does one really stupid thing. I just cannot fathom it. He must just not have thought he had the power to do something about him. He was king. I don't know. But what he does is he lets his son, Joram, get married to Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah. So up in the north, you got Ahab and Jezebel doing all their evil. You got Elijah preaching his face off, having face off or battle offs with the prophets of Baal, slitting throats, burning fire. You know all that, right? Running to the desert. God feeds them on the mountain. All that's going on. And Jehoshaphat goes ahead and alliances the, the families together in a marriage. What are you thinking, man? And that's really where, where things do go quite wrong. She marries Joram. Joram, as soon as his father, Jehoshaphat, dies, kills all of his brothers. His brothers were not supposed to be in charge. They were just going to rule like princes in various regions of the country. But I guess he took a line out of Ethbaal's playbook, right? Kill the brothers, get them out of the way, rule it all for yourself. That's what he does. Now, there are a number of things that go on in his life. His story is quite fascinating. He's, he is hated by everybody by the time he dies. He dies of dysentery, which... Elijah, that same prophet, tells him he will catch via a letter. Did you know there's a book of Isaiah, a letter, sorry, a book of Elijah, a letter from Elijah in the Bible? It's a couple chapters back in 2 Chronicles, and he writes to this guy, Joram. There's a whole argument about how did he do that? He should have been in heaven with the chariots of fire by then. How would he have wrote this letter? <laughs> Silly question. People who don't believe in prophecy, he wrote it before he left is the answer. I mean, if you don't believe in miracles, it's a problem, right? But, but if you believe in miracles, it's really not so tough. So this letter comes to Joram. It's like, you have done all these things. You've killed your brothers. You're a bad, you're a bad king. You're not going to last very long. You're going to die of a disease God will give you. And I do want to read it to you. It's so disgusting. Hold on. I don't want you to accuse me of coming up with it. I'm just going to read you the text. Oh, it's going to take me. I should have prepped this, and now it's going to take me a second to get there. But... Where are we, Joram? <clears throat> Bad TV on the internet. No, I'm not going to find it. There we go. Joram Rames. There it is. You can see the letter is in 2 Chronicles 21, 12 and following. We'll just start with verse 14. Behold, the Lord. Remember, this is Jesus Christ too, right? Behold, Jesus Christ will strike your people with serious affliction, your children, your wives, and all your possessions, and you will become very sick with the disease of your intestines until your intestines come out by reason of the sickness day by day. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You know, thanks be to God. Ouch. It's kind of gross. It happens to him. It happens to him. He dies in ignominy. No one mourns him. He doesn't even get buried with the other kings, which is really weird. It sets up something, too, though, which is cool. But then his wife, Athalia, she's still there. She's still Jezebel's daughter. She still wants Baal worship everywhere. And let me throw one more wrinkle into this. Let's imagine that you're a couple generations removed from someone who conquered your people. And they destroyed everything you had built, your grandfather or great-grandfather, maybe, maybe a little further back than that. But they destroyed everything that you built, and the stories go on about how all this land used to be yours, but now it's theirs. And all that remains is these two great cities, which you know are better than theirs. And you're the daughter of all of this, granddaughter of all of this. And you know that all this happened because their God said, David's throne will last forever. And now you're sitting on David's throne, and you don't got that blood, and you don't care about that God. 
Well, with her own son, she cares a little bit. So she lets Ahaziah, her son, reign for a year. And he's so bad, he gets himself killed almost right away. And I won't dig into his story. No one likes this guy either. Um, He ends up trying to support Israel in the north and again dies in battle. As soon as that happens, though. So now here she is on David's throne with her own son dead, but the grandchildren of that man, many of them apparently, all there and alive, sons, heirs to David's throne. And this is where I got to get back inside of her head a little bit and ask, what's going on, Grandma? As you then decide to go and murder all those babies, which is what she did. And I think what's going on is she was getting vengeance for generations old hate. You did this to my great, 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 great. And we had patience. And now I'm getting you back. Now, if you don't think the world works that way, you need to read more history. There's a lot of civilizations that think that way. We don't. We're running too fast to think that way. I don't think you should think that way, by the way. But you should be aware people do. Hmm? So in any case, there's an even better twist to this. And I wish I could guarantee you the best part of it is true. But the best part of it is poetic license. What we know is this, when all these babies are getting killed at one time, bloodletting in the castle or whatever, there is a woman who steals out of that place with one of the babies, one little boy, a grandson, who can then be the heir to the throne. This girl is the daughter of, we know for sure, Ahaziah, the king who just died. That is, she is not the mother of this baby, but a niece, excuse me, Cut that. Not the mother of this baby, but an aunt. She's an aunt. Now, is she also a daughter of Athaliah and a granddaughter of Jezebel? And that's where I think it is, but I can't tell you for sure because the text doesn't say. The issue is, why would Athaliah's own daughter betray her? And so the one commentary I read that said there's no way it's a daughter from the king by another wife, which is quite possible, and thus the aunt of this child still, it's quite possible, But their reasoning was that why would the daughter of Athaliah betray her? Well, maybe she converted to Christianity when she was married to the high priest and lived with him all those years. And we get to finding out that Jehoiada is 130 years by the time that this baby dies, and this baby only lives her regular age, which means when Jehoiada married this girl, he might have been way too old to even consecrate the marriage. It sounds to me like Jezebel had a plan to get her daughter into the house of Judah. And from there, they had a plan to get a daughter into the temple. And what happened is the daughter, young, who married the old man who they thought for sure would fade, converted her. And then she went and she saved the king. And they held him in the temple for six years in secret. Everyone thought he was dead. Bad guy's Joram. Sorry, wrong. That guy's Joash. I knew I'd do it. That guy's Joash. Joash. Joash lives hidden in the temple with the high priest and their family for six years. During that time, this lady, Athalia, reigns. Um, No one seems to love her. And I would even contend that if you know the Game of Thrones story, she is the model for uh, the main female antagonist in the family that has the lions. I should have her name, but I, I don't have it. But her character is very much like this woman. And she grabs the power as soon as she can. And she holds it tight again. She kills all the heirs and she just hangs on to that throne. What happens is Jehoiada sees all this going on and he hides for six years. 
Six years he puts up with his tyrants, doing all these things that shouldn't be done, lying not only in the name of the king, but in the name of God. Trying to force pagan worship closer and closer into the sanctuary of the temple. But when the boy is seven years old, he calls some of the princes from out in Judah. One by one, he has, a, I imagine, a pretty risky conversation with them. <laughs> Come into this inner room, let's talk. Here's the boy, what do you think? Do we have to kill you now? They all agree. And they go out and they get all the Levites from all over the land. They bring them in, they arm them. They just guard the temple. They don't even go after the woman. They guard the temple, they bring the people in, they coronate the boy as king. She hears it, she comes to the temple says, what's going on? Rips her clothing off in protestation. She shouldn't be in the temple. <laughs> she shouldn't be in the temple. She certainly shouldn't be naked in the temple. But then she's threatening them to do something great, a great evil, something they don't want to do, which is to kill somebody in the temple. That would be a great evil. And so what do they do? They take her out and kill her outside the temple. Now, story doesn't end though, does it? How does the story end with a death in the temple? Who is Zechariah? the son of Jehida, by whose word the same kid, Joash, who grew up in his house, who becomes a reformer on Jehida's guiding hand, the temple worship and the true worship of Israel becomes as great as it had ever been. You get him mentioned initially with Josiah and Hezekiah and David and Solomon, but then again, Jehoiada dies. This leader this prophet, this priest, whatever he was, this guiding hand, pastor, he dies. And then all the princes of Israel, they come to him, Judah, they come to him. And they say, now look, we know Jehoiada did a lot of good things and we're really glad you're king. But can we fix this, 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 and this and make it more amenable? It'll make everybody happy. We'll just do better. The problem was all those things were evil and sin. It's all good. It's just down on my feet. Thank you. All those things are evil and sin. So that the people continue to reject and move away from what God has said they should be and do. Now, if I'm going to apply this to you, I have to stop and ask, how far removed are we as a people from what God would have us be as Christians? Right now, in this country, In this country, where over the last 100 years, I'm not even going to tell you what they are, but no less than five radical social changes have been accepted and brought into the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate, almost without debate. I'm not even going to tell you what they are. I can just tell you, go back 100 years, and we look very, very different in the way we act. And back then, they would have said, because the Bible says so. And now we say, well, it doesn't really mean that. Now, forget all the rest of it. We should really worry about what it actually means. But when we've taken away a bunch of things for several decades, and then the whole place goes to hell in a handbasket, might we not consider we made some mistakes? Might we not consider that some of the things we've assumed are not as true as we thought? So that when we go back to the scriptures, we go back as those to be discipled by them. Not to be the master who will save this church but to be the slaves who are saved by the, by the master himself. The history of Joash's fall shows you how weak men are. All of us. We can be faithful, and then one day 
We're not. And then we can be called to repentance. And we can or we cannot. And if we don't, the next time we're called, it's harder. That's the problem. The more I don't want to be turned from what I've said or done, the harder it gets to turn. And when that builds among a person or a community, especially if the pastor is the one leading you in that lack of turning, over time it just compiles upon itself until nothing but fear and distrust is what you have. Now, that's not just a church phenomenon. That's every human group that exists. Church is just one human group, and we believe we are redeemed, bought back by Jesus' blood to be different, both here and wherever we go. I think I'm going to be saying this a lot in the future. You are salt and light in a world of decay and darkness. You are salt and light in the world of decay and darkness. Jesus says this at the start of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a promise to Christians. But what does salt do to decay? Well, it cleans it. Well, you think when that's happening, if you're the salt and the decay, it's like this really merry, happy time? And what does light do to darkness? Well, it reveals what was there, and that can be good. It can be quite awful. That's who we are as Christians. And let me submit to you that right now, this year's weirdness has created something of a, a pivot or a break between you and your neighbors who are not Christians. It's not big. It doesn't seem big yet. But in 30 or 40 years, a generation of tangent is going to get huge. A generation which is never taught you shall not kill. Never taught you shall not commit adultery. Never taught you shall not lie. And the more that that becomes the norm as if it isn't already, the more that you understand your faith in the words of Scripture actually written, the more you'll see that gap between you and the pagan worlds is bigger and bigger and bigger. Which isn't a reason to hide. It isn't a reason to fear. It's a reason to remember, that's right, I'm salt and light. Jesus says so. I should smell different than the world at a certain point. After Joash does all these things, it does not go well for him. He ends up, excuse me, again, dying. If I'm not mistaken, he's stabbed by his own friends. Again, I, I read so much of this last week, and tying the names together makes it difficult. I won't chase that one right now. But when he has Zechariah killed in the temple courts, we have now a moment where there's this overlap with the Stephen story from earlier. Because Stephen did a very similar thing to Zechariah. He stood up in a group of people who didn't want to hear something, and he said it anyway. And he said it because it was true and because God had actually said it. So it was like twice over true. And both men end with the same issue. They get killed. But there is, there is a shift that takes place, and I don't think it's on purpose by the evil ones, although maybe it is. And somewhere in this is the story of Saul of Tarsus. So... Well, let me see if I can tie some of that together. We're going to jump way ahead. Jesus has risen. Pentecost has happened. Thousands of people are becoming Christians. And the 12 guys who are the apostles now, 11, well, they make one more, 12. They're having a little trouble handling all of it. They need more. 
So they make these guys called deacons. And there's seven of them. And calling them deacons has instigated no end of debate in the Christian world. To this day, you can find various traditions, Catholic, Methodist, Episcopal, whatever you want to talk about. We'll have all these debates in terms of what's a deacon, what's an elder, what's an overseer, what's a this and that. The Lutheran lonely way has basically been we had the apostles. They were inspired and inerrant and wrote stuff down. And everybody after them is supposed to say what they said. And then we have random stuff that happens along the way. But there's really only one other office. It's the shepherd or the preacher. So Stephen is this. He's one of those first seven. Apostles need more people do anything connected to the word of God. And they send them. These guys had to be with them since they first started following Jesus. That is all three years and, and whatnot. But in any case, Stephen isn't sent very long before we get to our text, where he's full of grace and power and doing miracles. We could kind of tangent there. Why don't I do miracles? Well, it would seem, both biblically and historically, that when the apostles first put their hands on people, whether they were ordaining them or not, they had the ability to give them the power to do miracles, a spiritual gift, you might say. Sometimes they had the ability of prophecy. They had the ability to like read your heart and know what you were thinking. Peter does that once. Uh, that, that happened with the hands of the apostles. When the next generation comes on and the deacons and the presbyters and everybody else who's a preacher is laying on hands, those people are being sent with baptism, the supper, and the teaching, but the miracles just kind of fell away. It just didn't keep going. Like the guy before, I can do a miracle, but you can't. I don't know why. It's a generation thing is why. And the long and short is the miracles were a sign of the end of Judaism. That's it. And I can show you that in the prophets where it prophesies that would happen. That take too long for today. But Stephen is full of this power and he's doing these miracles as a sign amongst these very Jews that they're going to get destroyed if they don't turn and repent. That their temple, like the one before, will be destroyed if they don't turn and repent. That if they were to kill somebody in that temple, of course it would get destroyed. Ha ha. Wasn't that what almost happens? Although, when they get ready to stone Stephen, they don't do it in the temple courts like they did to way back when. Why, I wonder. And again, this is definitely my... Um, my opinion, I mean, I don't know what was in St. Paul's heart when he saw, uh, but I know he was a Pharisee of Pharisees and he knew the Old Testament really good. And my guess, he knew that story about Jehoshaphat and Joram and, and all this very, very well. He's quite aware that the reason that the temple got destroyed the first time is somebody got killed in the courts. And he wants this guy killed. And how do you know he's not the guy who said, hey guys, let's get outside first. And that's why they put their coats at his feet. He wanted to save the temple. I think he might have just done that. Of course, sometime around 67 AD, there was a zealot uprising that captured the temple and killed a bunch of the priests in the temple. And then the Romans came and destroyed the temple because well, that's the pattern, right? That's what happens. But Saul had been, well, divergentified now by Jesus. But First, it's after Stephen dies and says something in his sight that I want you to catch. And don't you know, had this, if you're Saul and you know the Bible and you know about Zechariah dying and you know he said, bring vengeance upon them, Lord, for this. And then Stephen looks you in the eye as he's being beaten with stones and his face is breaking. And he says, Lord Jesus, forgive them. And the fact is, no matter how you want to play the poetry, God did forgive Paul. And it changed the world just like he forgives you. 
and it's changing your world day by day. To make you one like Stephen, who can see that Jesus is more than this world. The great change that then came over Paul was not only his recognition that he killed an innocent man, but his recognition that he had the same promise as this innocent man, which is that he could run full head on into any death he could imagine, the worst possible. And he would come out of it on the other side, glorious and resurrected. Think of what Stephen said. People worry about it before you die. I cannot promise you. You're going to see Jesus opening heaven and saying, here you come. I'm not even sure I want that. I think I just want the Lord's Supper. But then again, if I'm about to be burned at the stake, I'll take the vision if it comes. And I'll rejoice in it, knowing it was given so I can confess Jesus rather than cling to this life. In this, then, let us move to our text from Christ himself in Matthew chapter 23, where I'm not going to belay the repetition. You can hear how angry he is. You guys killed Zechariah in the courts of the temple. That's why I'm here now to destroy everything. But he's saying this during Holy Week. This is what gets him killed. And he's going to destroy everything. And what I want you to catch, Christian, is that he wasn't talking about either the temple on the mountain, old or new. When he says that all the righteous blood shed on earth from Abel to Zechariah now comes upon this generation, that time, he was talking about his crucifixion. But the payment for every single wickedness, evil, destruction, death, guilt, struggle, wrong, is poured out in God's vindictive, righteous anger at this guy. I don't know if I can say it as well as I did at the other service. I really want to. It's, it's, it's like, if you can imagine, a giant fiery wrath ball driving at the entire planet. And it's from God because we deserve it. It's for a bunch of zombies or something. I don't know. You imagine it. And then suddenly, right before the wrath ball hits the planet, this dude, run it, jump, catch the wrath ball, into his own body, dead, into the ground, boom, it all goes off. He walks back out. I am Jesus Christ. I am risen from the dead. And the only thing stopping you from believing it is you not believing it. Honestly. All the blood is atoned for in one man, one time, one day. The warning, though, and it's good to hear, even on this Gaudete, rejoice with me Sunday in Advent. Advent's about warning. The warning, though, is not to miss the fact that just because you are those who say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that there aren't those who don't say that. I've said this before, I'll say it again, you need to know it. The fool is a real thing, that is, a person who is foolish in the way the Bible calls them foolish, which means they're not just dumb, they're dangerous. You don't want to listen to these people. Well, how do you know what that is? Oh, read the Proverbs. It's not that tough. A little bit every day. It goes a long way. It's like vitamins. But Jesus says it here too, though. He says that there are these evil people that no matter what he does are going to insist on staying evil. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city that kills the prophets. You stone those who are sent to it. How often I would gather you, and you would not. 
So your house is left desolate. Not because Jesus has to desolate it. All God does to let the wrath come is he just removes his mercy. <laughs> and then we bring it. Pow! Jerusalem had it happen. Is it going to happen to the United States? Isn't that the question we should really be asking? I do a lot of stuff on the internet these days, and I encourage you to try to find some of it if you haven't. One of the best things I'm doing for myself is a podcast uh, where I get to interview a professor at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, our, our seminary. Uh, his name is Adam Kuntz or, or Dr. Kuntz. He's, it's weird. He's younger than me by like 10 years, and yet I'm learning from him. And you, maybe you've had that experience you know, uh, in one way or the other. What he's done as a young man, he, he's profound. He has read almost everything I can imagine a person ever reading, every bit of history ever. And on the show, A Brief History of Power with two white guys that we do, uh, we're trying to understand how to deal with the rising and falling of our country right now as Christians. And one of the things that we've gotten is feedback, which is so fascinating, is to have LCMS Lutherans get mad that we're talking about these things. Now, if you're from outside the LCMS or you live in a bubble, you might not know this, but there's a whole school of thought, which basically is the stick your head in the sand, it'll be okay school of thought for church. And I've always thought it was something wrong, but when we answered a question about this recently on the show, Dr. Kuhn said it in a way that put it in such stark contrast, I, I can't ignore it anymore. He said, what you're doing is you're asking your pastors not to talk about the devil. That's what you want. You want a pastor who never talks about the devil. Otherwise, he has to talk about the heathen world power that in every age seeks to destroy all men and the church. Revelation prophesies it. It's always here. And it's always whoever is the strongest country in the world. Who's that? We're that. What happens when you've been along for the ride with Babylon? And in the 70 years with Babylon, you've gotten better than where you were in Israel. And then God comes along and says, Babylon's going to fall now. What do you do? Now, let me give you this. This is why I'm talking to Dr. Kuntz. When you hear about a country falling, you think like, like the Twin Towers, right? You think like a one moment and it all happens. And that's not how it works. Even World War I, which was a catastrophe, a catastrophe, it wasn't everywhere in Europe. It was in very specific places in Europe. So whenever any country falls, it falls in localities and most of the people who get hurt usually are either those trying to get in control or those who are trying to get food and the food supply gets disrupted. So honestly, my prayers for you these last, what, three, four weeks have been for our food supply here in Rockford. I really have been praying desperately for that. That over the next two years or three years, whatever else we see happen, whoever else decides they're in charge of whatever, our food supply retains. Because frankly... The projections from the World Health Organization of the next two years are famines all over the planet because of the lockdowns, mostly in countries that can't afford to do what we do here. But then again, we get our food from somewhere, and if you take it from there, aren't you just taking it from them? And of course, there's that whole migration thing and borders. I'm sure that'll come back in the news soon enough. They got to keep your head spinning. They can't give you one story for long. I'm not here to convince you that I know all that's going on. I'm here to convince you that Jesus does. He's not worried about most of it because he knows that we're just going to keep rising and falling in our own name. We start on the ground with a pretty good idea, but at some point high up, 
Somebody has to lie in order to get what they want. And someone else has to know it. And when they know that, when justice is perverted by leaders, by the elite, whatever level it is, your family, your government, your church, when it's perverted, it's only a matter of time until the whole thing collapses. Because when you've accepted the ability to believe lies, I'm going to walk around, I'm going to pretend it's true because it'll eventually go away. What you've done is you've removed the concept of truth itself. You've emboldened people who tell lies. And eventually, they will lie more and more. Now, history shows us again, at the ground level, that is the common people, which is all of us, none of us are elite people. At the common level, when these historical events take place, our biggest problem is getting food and taking care of each other. It's up at the top where the real fighting takes place. So our task here and now as a people is not to say, is there going to be a war? Not to say, will there be fighting? It's to say, I'm going to pray for my government today. I'm going to pray for peace today. I'm going to work today to make sure that I can help whoever's near me. And if in this coming year there's going to be trials and struggles, I'm not going to look down and start to worry. I'm going to stand up and believe that for such a time as this, Jesus Christ brought me here. And if he's going to bring immigrants from Mexico who are starving, flooding across our borders, looking for food, then I don't want just enough food for me. I want enough food for them too. And again, like I said in our announcements this morning, we have to be a people who are willing to talk about these things, about what the devil is doing and about what we're not going to let happen in our midst. Now, we're already set up in general so that if a few of us are going hungry, we have some pooled resources to help. That's a good start. I'm not asking you to do anything else right now. Nothing different. Just remember who you are. And remember that the news cycle has one thing to sell you. And it's not peace, security, and Christianity. It is whatever they want that they're not going to tell you. And it should be all I have to say, I think. Really should. But uh, our age, maybe this will help. I like movies, video games. I've spent a lot of my life in these things. Too much even, I think, for me. Um, so recently I was really struggling with, you know, Jonathan, when are you going to grow up, man? Uh, when are you going to stop playing games, you know, for fun and, and go do something, learn something, be active in some way. And so as I was doing that, I, I took video games and movies, basically blue light, except for, for work out of my life entirely for, you can ask my kids, it's been maybe a month now, something like that. And they've had to endure, you know, less movies and video games as a result. And you can imagine how that's going. Um, but it's been trying to figure out, like, why I was so willing to let it take away so much of my life. Because it did. I'd sit there for hours and hours and hours. It was taking my life away. I enjoyed it, I think. But here's the thing that's made me really struggle. I had the thought that, what if, what if Jesus came back? Right at the moment when I was so engrossed in the best movie I'd ever seen that I, I really couldn't be interrupted for anything. Not that I wouldn't want to. I'd want Jesus to interrupt me, but just, well, frankly, I was just too drunk to notice he came back. Because that's what it is at a certain level when you watch a movie for two to three hours and then play a game for hours and hours more still. It's a form of drunkenness. It's not like alcohol. Don't do a one-to-one -one and let's not be moralists at all about this. But you've got to recognize that the longer you're in front of that screen for one set of time and you don't move, 
the longer you have been without self-control or awareness, largely, drawn by whatever is there, whether it's the notifications that they're sending to you or whether it's just the story itself. And this is not evil by itself, just as having a beer or two in your evening isn't evil by itself. But when one or two hours begins again, three, four, five, seven, always on, ooh, that's where I'm at for me. I don't want to go there anymore. And I would challenge you to think twice about it. Because again, the tactic the devil will use to lie most right now in the world is to change the story every three to seven days. He'll recycle them. He'll bring them back. But it's crisis, what? Crisis, what? Crisis, what? And what can the average man do? Nothing, because you're too busy watching. And if you turn it all off, you find out you got like five to six hours more a day, which is quite a thing. I would encourage you to pray the Psalms. Read your Bible with that. I would also encourage you with all the law you've heard me speak today in the sense of I said, we got to think about these things. We got to deal with these things. We got to be this kind of people. You can only hear me because you are those who say, blessed is he who comes in the name of Jesus. And you are only still listening because you know that my endeavor is to come upon you in the name of Jesus, according to the scriptures. And that together we're going to walk in the confidence that that grace alone is sufficient to embolden our faith alone. That we can rise and die and live and fade and do whatever comes our way. Because the secret of contentment is having eternity in your heart. That this day is not the end, neither is tomorrow, neither is the day I burn, if I burn at all. Every single day is a gift from God. And in Jesus, today is another day to know he's never going to leave you never going to forsake you. And even the suffering now is a path to a more strong and wise tomorrow. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. In the name of Jesus, amen.